0: Will, so in our first episode, we covered your expertise as a security specialist, and a lot of people really enjoyed the stories that you were telling and the work that you've done. And over the past month or so, I've been trying to make sense of what's been happening in Afghanistan with the exit, with the anniversary of 9-11, and I've kind of had a hard time understanding exactly what has happened. So I thought of uh, who I could reach out to that may have some expertise. So I called on you. I want to warn everyone who is very well-versed in what has happened. I'm going to ask some basic questions. So this might not be an episode for you. But Will, thanks for joining me for part two of our conversation.
1: Well, I'm very honored, Takis. You're you're my favorite podcaster. Uh, Keep that quiet. I don't want the others knowing this because they'll be very upset. Uh, But uh, I I always enjoy uh, doing your show, and so I'm really honored to be invited back. Thank you.
0: In our first conversation, we briefly touched on your personal relationship and experience with Afghanistan, so maybe we should start there. What is your experience there, your personal relationship, and I'm sure you have a ton of very close friends that have very deep experiences in that region.
1: Yeah, so my experience goes back to uh, pretty much after I'd spent about three years on and off in Iraq, where I'd been operating mainly in the south of the country, in Basra, and uh, working alongside uh, the British Armed Forces and working with their operational teams, uh, looking at uh, trying to provide guidance and advice and doing reviews and audits on not only their security, uh, so, you know, the guys are going out on patrol, they're going to do their thing. Um, but again, when they come back, whatever camp they're going to be located in, unless they're out in the Yulu and dug into a foxhole, uh, my responsibility was looking at how they and the civilian contractors and what they call the LRWs, the locally recruited workers, could be safe and secure in the event of things like indirect fires. And for example, in Basra, the time I was down there, they were getting between five and 15 IDFs a day. So these are mortars that are being fired into um, the cob, which was basically Basra Airport. Um, so my responsibility, there was then uh, seconded or commissioned to go out to Afghanistan. And I went out to Afghanistan in about 2006 and was again there for about two years on and off uh, during pretty much the, 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 the heat times where it was really quite cheeky. Um, pushing back, obviously, the Taliban, and enabling, obviously, the country to to acquire some pockets of democracy. Uh, I spent some time in Kabul. I remember my first experience of Kabul, I was staying at a place called Camp Suta. Um, and actually, when you come in, you come into Kia, which was uh, the Kabul International Airport, or they'd call it the Karzai, as in Hamid Karzai, uh, the president of Afghanistan, who, to be honest, if you ask to the local people, he was considered more the mayor of Kabul than he was the president of the country. Um, and then you go to Camp Suta, which was where I was operating. There was a special forces uh, team and camp just down the road. And I was doing my job there. And then I would travel across into the Helmand, to Kandahar, to Lashkagar, Goreshk, and various other forward operating bases. So I'm jumping on and off of uh, helicopters, uh, Black Hawks, Sea Kings, Um, various different fixed wings uh, from C-130s through to Chinooks, you know, all sorts. So uh, I got a really good flavor, not only of the country, uh, but also the local people. And one of my things, Takis, and I know I'm sort of gabbling on a little bit, um, but one of the things that really kind of dawned on me when I was out there was to say, what are we actually doing down here? You know, what are we actually achieving? And that was a sentiment that I think was shared by most people operating down there, certainly within the ISAF, which was the International Security Assistance Force, which was made up of obviously the Brits, the Americans, Canadians, Australians, and various other international forces, almost like in a UN capacity. And my feeling was very much along the lines of, surely this should be more a sort of intelligence-born operation that then is uh, succeeded with either a special forces strike or a drone strike. And that was going on, um, but it was a very, very different theater of operation to Iraq. And I think for a lot of troops who went to Afghanistan after Iraq, if they'd done some torso, there, they just sort of had a real, real cultural change to what they had faced over there, which was a lot more volatile, a lot more unpredictable, um, but a lot more amateurish in terms of the enemy. In Afghanistan, you know, the Taliban and the Mujahideen, highly experienced, incredibly capable fighters. Uh, which had certainly seen the Russians off after a 10-year conflict, as you know, that went on there.
0: One of the things that we see a lot on social media or just in traditional media is the general public's attitude to what has happened, politicians' attitude to what has happened. But I haven't really heard about people that had boots on the ground, what their opinion has been, their personal opinion, not logistics, but how they feel emotionally about how the last 30 days has unfolded for people that you've spoken to that really risk their lives, really put it all on the line. How do they feel emotionally about how this these past few weeks have
1: unfolded? Really disappointed. I mean, that's the general consensus, um, me included. And I, you know, and I know a couple of people who did die down there. Um, not as many as a lot of the troops that were stationed down there. And you know, it's. It's after an awful lot of time that was spent basically trying to democratize Afghanistan. Anybody who thought it was a war is greatly misled and uh, and misinterpreting what it was. What the guys were doing down there was trying to create and push back the Taliban to enable uh, normality and life to go on there as it had before. Uh, the, the early 90s, when the Taliban came in and pretty much introduced their very extreme version of Sharia law. Um, if you look at photographs, for example, of um, Afghanistan life or Kabul in the late 80s, in the 70s, you see an incredibly cosmopolitan country, a lot of women who are going to universities, uh, achieving great success in careers in senior positions. And as soon as the Taliban came in, you know, it was all pushed back. Women were subjugated. And the huge disappointment and heaviness in the heart, I think for many guys who were down there, who saw just the chaotic extraction and withdrawal from Afghanistan was, we did all this work. We made all these sacrifices. We invested our, our hearts, lives, our families in certain circumstances in this. And we've left the Afghan people to the mercy of the Taliban. And, and we have. And it's like, what was it for? And and I can understand that frustration, and, it, and it's heartbreaking.
0: There's the, the term about someone dying in vain or not dying in vain, and I, I've seen that a lot online, frustration and anger. And something that has been very rare and bizarre, as you can tell, if you have a Twitter account, you realize that there are a lot of arguments about just about every topic that could possibly be argued about. And what I found very bizarre, I'm not really a political person, but just observing the right, the left, the center, everybody kind of was united in frustration in seeing these tragic images of the exit. And that almost never happens. You never open Twitter and see someone on the right and someone on the left and someone who never has a political take, all frustrated, seeing these videos, these photos of the airport. Is that a, another thing you've seen that's kind of bizarre, that this almost went beyond politics, that this was just human emotions seeing deeply tragic images of a failed exit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I look at the Biden administration, and, and this is a legacy that he will live with, um, of leaving. There are still some 1,000 uh, American uh, personnel down there in Afghanistan who legitimately have their green cards or U.S. passports or Canadian passports to come back. Um, The U.K., we have a a number of people still down there who legitimately can come back. But there were so many, I can't remember whether I could swear on this, Takis. Can I swear on your podcast? Of course. Always always welcome. (laughs) Um, You know, it was such an almighty fuck up um, that there were things like, for example, the DNA, uh, the fingerprint and biometric records of all the Afghan workers working with the coalition forces, that was abandoned and left, and will go straight into the hands of the Taliban. So they have a high-value target list. Um, you know, we can come on to some of the people that I extracted out of there in duress, You know, some of the high-value targets, members of the uh, the government, who literally these uh, the Taliban would want to stick their head on a on a stake. Um, that if we hadn't got them out, they would have been they would have you know they would have been killed and very publicly. Um, the way that uh, the locals were not supported in in terms of any kind of sensible extraction I mean when you look at an extraction and I've managed quite a few of them myself not at that kind of scale I'd readily admit but certainly a few hundred of people here and there or down to one singular HVT um, you have three options you have air you have land and you have sea now the air option obviously was limited window for obviously the planes to that could potentially lift people out you don't have a sea you're in a landlocked country so you then have the land and which direction do you head you head towards pakistan where the taliban originated and there is the pakistan taliban controlling from the jalalabad which is the main sort of port of entry to a certain extent into pakistan and it's incredibly hostile over there Uh, you had the northern alliance which was just north of there uh, obviously, Taliban pushed hard against them and tried to defeat them. Uh, you have Iran. Uh, you know, whichever direction you're heading, it ain't good. So, you know, the the way that we've left it is really, really poor. And, you know, uh, Jocko Wilson, I don't know whether you follow him, you know, the Navy SEAL. Uh, I would certainly, you know, invite people, some of the listeners, Uh, To go and look at his Instagram and he came out with a fantastic speech with only the sort of words that I could only fully endorse and a Navy SEAL would actually say Which is we get on the ground we get people out Taliban want to mess with us We're gonna start packing the bodies, you know end off and it needs balls to deal with these kind of situations And unfortunately Trudeau doesn't have any balls. I'm sorry to say that to my my dear Canadian friends uh, but I think they might in, might agree with me on that. Biden doesn't have any bulls or appetite. Um, and Boris Johnson, very few bulls. Uh, you know, we're in a real bad situation where, you know, world leaders need to to to, to, to 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 have this on their conscience.
0: Going very simple with the actual week that led up and week beyond the actual exit, how long... Did it take to exit? Was this scheduled and almost public in a sense, or was this a a surprise? It hit out of nowhere. Logistically, what exactly happened? Soldiers find out how long does it take to leave. Uh, Let's go kind of very simple with the week leading up and week that followed. Exactly what happened.
1: Okay, so there are conflicting reports, Takis, as to to what actually happened. Um, But this kind of universal inside track was that the supply chains by foreign contractors, US contractors, British contractors, they dried up. Now, having protected civilians, you know, in major parts of the world and looked after them in terms of getting them safe, getting them into hostile environments, getting them out of hostile environments, you know, the risk appetite is a great deal less than it is necessarily for military. And a lot of the supply chain, and that's for food, for weapons, for other resources, life support, um, if you don't get those support channels and those routes obviously maintained, then they dry up in those particular forward operating bases. I think the biggest mistake that the Americans made was they closed Bagram, and they they abandoned Bagram really quickly. And Bagram was a fantastically huge uh, operational base. We the Brits had closed down um, uh, Camp Bastion. Uh, My brain's going for a minute. Uh, And I was in Camp Bastion in the the helmet. And I remember when I first went to Bastion, it was literally a tiny one-horse town. By the time it finished, uh, it was the size, and this probably won't mean a great deal to the international other than the Brits, it was the size of Reading. I mean, and that's a big town in the south of the UK. So it was huge. Bagram was even bigger than that. And the civilian contractors pulling out because they couldn't obviously swallow all the appetite for the risk, and that, that's understandable, meant that the whole thing dominoed, and therefore the military had to withdraw super quick. There was this business of this $83 billion worth of armaments, helicopters, uh, vehicles, um, automatic rifles, ammunition, everything else, uh, night vision goggles. You know, a lot of that would, certainly of some of the air carriers, they would have been certainly sabotaged. I mean, if you get caught in a, in a foreign country, which is a hostile risk, you zero out your equipment, you know, you, you zero out your GPS so the, the, the bad guys don't know where you've been. And equally, if it's a helicopter, you, I mean, if anyone's seen Black Hawk down, they'll remember when the, the Black Hawk goes down in Mogadishu, you know, uh, and that's, I think, the anniversary, something like 27 years uh, this week or something on, uh, on the Black Hawk down Mogadishu situation. But you would then throw grenades in to the actual helicopter to render it inoperable to the other side. But I do believe that there were some other air carriers. So the problem was was that everybody had to get out super quick. So it wasn't done in a staged, managed process, which one should have. And although Biden can blame Trump for making this deal in Qatar last year, um, he's the new president. He's the new commander in chief. You make your own rules when you step into the job. You can go. I don't agree with any of that, and I'm going to push it back a lot further. But to do it, as you mentioned right at the beginning. Just before the anniversary of 9 11, you couldn't add insult to injury more.
0: So, to wrap my head around the decision making prior, if, say I'm the president of the US, his national security advisors come around and offer options based on risk reward. He might have one, two, three, five options. They'll explain risk reward and maybe even probabilities. Is that typically how a major decision would go?
1: Um, I think it depends on the, the, the advisors uh, that are sat around the table. And, you know, I, I'm very apolitical like you. Um, I, I don't have an alliance or allegiance to any one particular uh, political party. To be honest, as far as I'm concerned, they're all lying, cheating bastards. And, uh, and whatever they promise you when they're on the, their electioneering, uh, they're very unlikely to probably deliver later. But I think um, the Democrat Party as most liberal parties like here in the United Kingdom, are very anti-military. They're not pro-military. So any arguments that the generals may have presented in the room to Biden or to his uh, immediate advisers, I think were disregarded for more, will we look good doing this or is it the woke thing to be doing that, Uh, rather than let's look at this sensible. But the, the body count and the casualty count that will come as a result of this. And the Taliban are smart. They're not stupid, these guys. They're playing the Russians off, they're playing the Iranians off, they're playing the Chinese off, um, but they have the same agenda. When you bear in mind their their uh, minister for the interior, uh, this uh, this guy, he still has a five million dollar bounty on his head by the U.S. government, and yet he's been sanctioned to be able to just crack on and do his job. And all of the main cabinet are made up of the old and the bold from the early '90s. So it doesn't take the brains of an archbishop to figure out where this is heading
0: i'm i'm going to sound you know super simple in this whole conversation because i'm still struggling to kind of wrap my head around the decision making and i think a lot of our listeners a lot of young people are seeing things online seeing things in the media not understanding how it got to this point is there any ability in you to play devil's advocate to give a theory for why that specific decision was made—is it a political play that uh, political leaders thought would look good in the media that went wrong? What is the devil's advocate for why this decision was made? Because I can't seem to to really understand how this ha- happened
1: whatsoever. No, I'm the same. I mean, I, I wish I could come up with a rationalizing for for why they've done it. Um, it, it seems like a momentary loss of sanity uh, more than anything else. I mean, if I was, I mean, I think the only way I could honestly answer that question, because I'm at a loss to speculate why they did it, um, my only answer could be, Takis, as to what I would do and how I would have done it. And it would have been a very gradual, slow extraction, transition. I think there would have been serious conditions outlined in advance of what international support, bearing in mind, you know, the Taliban have some $10 billion of assets that are being seized overseas and they can't get access to, um, but they will have enough international partners which will, you know, fill the void. Uh, I would be setting out my conditions super hard and super fast right from the get go. And I would be allowing because these things never go as planned. They never... Uh, Go as quickly or to the schedule the timetable that you might imagine so you build in those contingencies you build in those Extensions, you know right up to the wire. I saw this in the news They were like well, we've only got a week left and we got to get out Which is why embassies were leaving critical important information still in the embassy buildings when they are extracting Um, It's remarkable. I mean the US and the UK did I think you know the guys on the ground the embassy staff the State Department staff, and from our side, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, and I think from the Canadian side. And think they did a really as good a job as they could, bearing in mind they were getting the orders shouted at them and barked from above to say, you've got to pull out. Um, the fact of the matter is they stayed steadfast to the deadlines. And I think Biden's cabinet or Biden's you know, inner circle just didn't have the appetite to continue spending billions. But he had to sit back and be you know, retrospective and say, well, how many billions have we already spent? And okay, we may have to spend a few more billions, but is this going to look good or is it going to look bad if we just abandon ship and just run away? And it's the latter.
0: As you were talking, I just thought there's kind of this glaring contradiction in this, whether it is uh, Biden or the image of empathy and compassion. But neglecting the moral obligation to those who actually helped the US army, people on the ground. I've I've seen a lot about translators which were used a lot. Yeah. A lot of people that helped on the ground guide certain areas. Do you think that's a glaring contradiction and isn't there some sort of moral obligation to those who helped the Americans for or all of us
1: for 20 years? Without question, without question. And this is what sickens me the most, is that the Biden administration um, and the, the US. had a very major they had the predominant presence down there in Afghanistan. Um, and so they, they were running pretty much most of the controls, you know, us and you guys in Canada and, and various other countries Germany, Italy and various other parts of the world um, we had contingents down there, but the Americans had the strongest contingents. So they provided that umbrella of protection within which we could all join together and 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 fight the good fight against the enemy. Biden's all about the caring president. I, you know, it's total contradiction and total hypocrisy that they've been, we're the caring, sharing, look after everybody, inclusive society. And, you know, don't get me started, Turkish. I mean, I could be really unpolitically correct here uh, and then uh, you'll never invite me back, but hopefully you'll have a beer with me. Uh, but, you know, All of this inclusion, all of this, um, you know, caring for everybody else. What do they do down there? They leave Afghanis who have been supporting for the last 20 years the American troops, helping them. And I've met many Afghanis down there. They're lovely people. They're really nice, lovely, normal people who are absolutely fucking terrified about what they have ahead of them. And the interpreters, the Taliban will make it... examples of anybody that has worked for the coalition forces and for ISAF. And they will fundamentally execute them or imprison them or murder their families. These guys are absolute savages. There is nothing redeemable about the Taliban. So regardless of what people say, the Taliban, there is not one iota of any kind of empathy in their agenda. And that's why Biden should have reinforced and stood up to the empathy that supposedly he's promoting.
0: So very plainly speaking, if somebody there has helped the U.S. Army, they will be either jailed, killed, or their family will be jailed and killed. There was no agreement or negotiation with Biden and leaders that those who have helped
1: would have some sort of immunity? No, no, no immunity at all. Um, They had to get out on the planes. And this is why, you know, the, the complete chaos outside Kabul airport, uh, I know that uh, visas for Germany were going on the black market for $4,000 apiece. Wow. Um, there were a number of other sort of uh, various black market deals to try and get people out. People were desperate to do everything. But when you say, it, well, you know, when I was saying that it could be they're imprisoned or they're executed or their family is. It's every good likelihood it will be not only the individual, but their family as well. So the, the Taliban are ruthless and they'll be communicating a very clear message to say, you know, if you're going to be helping the Americans or assisting the Brits or the Canadians in any shape or form, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, I have been in part of a couple of interesting discussion groups with operators, strategists, analysts who are not only Afghani, but also, you know, U.S. and various other countries. Uh, And these have been closed sort of uh, Chatham House rule sort of gatherings. You know, we're all in agreement that the CIA will still have a presence down there. Uh, They'll still be running intel. But the question is the legality and also the implications that if they take out various groups, like ISIS-K, for example, who, albeit they're enemies of the Taliban, um, if ISIS-K are taken out with drone strikes, you know, that's intervention uh, into a foreign country without permission, and it's going to be in contravention probably to the agreement that was set up between Trump and supported by Biden for the Taliban to take back control of uh, Afghanistan.
0: Something people are talking about on all sides and in the media is women's rights. Over the past two decades, has there been meaningful progress for women in Afghanistan and is that going to essentially get set back those same amount of decades in
1: the up and coming months? Absolutely. Um, the, the, the statistics are fantastic of the number of women who've been to college, been to university as we call it, college for you guys, um, got their master's degrees, have been involved in businesses, involved in government, involved in uh, CEOs of their own uh, major corporations down there. You know, it was hugely progressive. It was a fantastic future, as it should be, uh, for women to be treated as equals, obviously, within society and within business and government and otherwise. Um, The whole thing has been dialled back to the Jurassic period now, you know, and women already are being forced to not be able to leave the house without a male chaperone, to wear full hijibs. Uh, to not get there are no women within the current government that has been formed by the Taliban and there never will be Um, Women will be treated horrifically. The subjugation is just disgusting and you know And this is why we've seen so many women with their families with their small girls trying to escape Afghanistan This is not them trying to be economic tourists getting their opportunity to go to America or Canada or the UK or Europe you know, to seek a better life. You know, they had a good life down there, but they know what is ahead of them. And their children, their daughters will have no future of promise and opportunity and equality by staying down there. So yeah, they want to get out of country and you can't blame them. You mentioned
0: extraction and the sheer scale of this extraction. And for like two seconds, as you use that term, I thought that that could potentially be a valid excuse. The word scale and just seeing the images, there's a lot of people and a lot of things to extract. But in 3 seconds, I also thought about the sheer amount of spending that that no expense was too much that there were billions and billions of dollars and you expect this the US army it has just this prestige and this like excitement about it where they would have the intelligence, they would have the funding that scale shouldn't really be a valid excuse so would you agree with that that scale is in no way an excuse it's just a, an obstacle that there was enough funding to get around
1: uh it was okay so we we backtracked to january of this year uh a group called the afghanistan working group uh is this bunch of intellectuals academics analysts um that were looking at the extraction um and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And they forewarned not only that Afghanistan would descend into the control of the Taliban very quickly, but also that there would be a wider scale implication of international terrorism that would be enabled and would obviously uh, repercuss into you know, the United States, Canada, the UK, Europe and everywhere else. Um, that was disregarded. Then the director of national intelligence, and that is Biden's own director of national intelligence in March, went to Biden and repeated independently from his own intelligence he'd got from uh, the State Department, from the CIA, from the NSA, from the various other intelligence agencies and their partners, and said, this is what's gonna happen. So there was no excuse for them not to throw money at the issue and say, or even sit down with the Taliban. And you know, I, I might be a little bit more robust than some people, but just say, okay, you want us out by September, that ain't gonna happen. We've done our planning, we've done our mapping, we've done our extraction um, uh, schedules and itinerary and how these modules are gonna run. We're gonna need it up to December. Um, Tufty Shitsky, deal with it. And if not, we'll just fucking drone strike you. I know that's a little harsh, but I would be, you know what, we're supposedly the, the, the biggest power in the world um, and we're gonna flex our muscles if you guys don't allow it, we're, we're leaving. And we'll be doing it, and you'll be seeing us extracting, but we need the time to be able to do it properly. And, uh, and like I said much earlier, these things never go to plan, and they always take a lot longer than you would imagine. Um, but there was no flexing by Biden,
0: none. Speaking of the biggest superpower in the world, and as a Canadian, we always look at like the U.S. Army and their technology and their numbers and their spending as this huge thing what does this event say to the global community? What does this say to allies? What does this say to uh, other countries that the Americans have their back? Uh, what, what exactly does this do to a reputation and just the illusion of security to countries that really, really trust the U.S. Army?
1: Well, there, there are two things. Um, Trump was motivated by economics. Um, his choice for withdrawing out of Afghanistan was, we've spent enough money, we've done as much as we can, uh, we're now withdrawing. However, how come they haven't withdrawn out of Germany? You know, there's still 20,000 US troops or so, or even more, I think, in Germany, in South Korea, in various other parts of the world, where the threat is not as tangible and visceral as it is in Afghanistan. Um, But Trump was motivated by money. And I think he was probably, as he did with the Climate Accord in Paris, he went, we're spending, we're contributing far more than everybody else. And if nobody else, and NATO as well, you know, he said the same there. We're contributing more than other countries are. And why should we? And I get that. I do get that. Biden, however, his agenda was... no, we're going to look after the American people and uh, we, we're not going to intervene in foreign affairs and in foreign policy and other issues. You see, the problem is, is that whenever I hear that, it's a case of them saying, well, we won't get involved in foreign countries because that could create repercussions as we saw with Iraq and, you know, and the, the, obviously the response from Al-Qaeda, albeit I always said when I was down in uh, Iraq, there was no presence of Al-Qaeda down there. That was a whole other agenda. And it was an economic driven one. And I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. But Biden is more about, well, we don't want to upset our our friends overseas or the scary nations overseas because they may come and have attacks at us. I think what it shows, and this is where a lot of veterans and a lot of serving personnel, and I think standard Americans and North Americans feel that Biden has no backbone. He has, you know, when push comes to shove and you're having to put your dukes up and fight, He's going to be the one who grabs his bag and runs. And and that is not what America is about. It's not what North America is about.
0: When we're talking about the sheer numbers, I've seen some estimates at $65 billion, some at $85 billion worth of equipment that was essentially left. I imagine option number one, and uh, the most reasonable option, would be to take that gear out. Option two would be to destroy... And option three, it looks like almost $85 billion worth of gear is now in someone else's hands. How exactly does that happen? Was option one and two uh, reasonable and should have been done? Or is, are we also looking at scale once again with so much equipment?
1: Well, to a certain extent, a lot of that equipment was provided to the Afghan National Army. And this was another thing that really... Um, ground my gears when people were saying, well, the Afghan National Army just, you know, turned tail and ran and deserted and, you know, abandoned their post. To be honest, from my experience with the Afghan National Army, a lot of those guys, because of the endemic corruption within government, um, few of them actually got paid, you know, or they wouldn't be fed properly. They wouldn't get their three meals a day. And so in many cases, they were turning around and saying, well, why the hell were we sticking around, you know, defending a situation where ultimately our is going to get killed we'll get killed so yeah there was a there was a degree of them thinking well you know what why are we going to stick around because to be honest this is uh, this is only going to be bad for us and they weren't supported enough and you know and a lot of that equipment was afghan national army equipment it's a considerable amount of equipment but intelligence should have gone well what do we see happening and i think a lot of those um uh, analysts were failed in uh Accepting or, or recognizing that the Taliban would move so damn quick in retaking the country. Um, and I think, you know, that's a failing on intelligence. And I think, again, this is why a staged extraction had to be done over a pr- more prolonged period, that as certain areas are being closed down, if you see the Taliban advancing super quick, you know, it's like the tide rising, you go, right, I'm going to get my feet out of the water super quick. So any particular equipment that is sensitive, doesn't belong to the ANA, you want to get out, or you certainly don't want the enemy getting their hands on because, okay, they can't fly the helicopters necessarily, but what they can do is they can sell them to foreign nations that potentially can, or sell them for parts. So you're helping their war chest considerably with all that um, inventory that's down there. So yeah, you sabotage it, blow it up, or you take it out when
0: thinking about i guess shifting to blame because this has so many moving parts and i i still feel almost as confused as when i i started with how this has happened but is there a reasonable conversation about blaming analysts that had poor models that get paid very well to to give proper estimations is there blame towards security advisors that even presented this as a viable option or at the end of the day the 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 buck stops with the president of the United States that um, as much as there are advisors and analysts, there's only one person that signs off?
1: Yeah, I I'd say it's the latter. Um, you know, yeah. analysts can always get it wrong. And there is a degree of crystal ball gazing. Um, but there were enough intelligence assets, human source intelligence assets on the ground. Um, but I mean, again, it's repeating history. It's like Iraq, the withdrawal from Iraq was a fucking disaster. And I mean, and. If you read Sun Tzu, Art of War, one of the things that Sun Tzu makes very clear in his tome, which is, what, some 800 years old, uh, where he turns around and says, the last thing that you do is, if you are extracting from a country, is you just do not have any kind of infrastructure with military and police that is robust and resilient. Um, And fundamentally, yes, it is. I mean, Biden is the president, is the commander in chief. Uh, I think the analysts can throw their suggestions into the mix. But if he has, if he wants to risk mitigate, you go with the most extreme scenario uh, because anything, be, you know, less than that is going to be a bonus. Uh, and you look at the, I mean, and we'll do this on a tactical operation. We'll look at everything that potentially goes wrong. Usually we've forgotten a few things and something will happen, which we, none of us would expect happening. Um, but we will expect the worst case scenario because if we can have a solution or we have some kind of mitigation for that, then you know, things are going to go a lot smoother than if we haven't.
0: As I was reading on the situation, trying to get a better grasp, I'd read a lot about the withdrawal um, the Soviet Union had about 20 years probably before I was born. What similarities can be found? Because it sounds like a lot of people are drawing parallels for how that exit went and how this exit went. And knowing that was about 40 years ago, how did we not take a few notes?
1: Well, I think one of the reasons that we can't compare it um, and it is quite different is because the U.S. CIA were supporting the Mujahideen, and uh, and one of the things that the Mujahideen had at their avail, which uh, they wouldn't have otherwise had, was Stinger missiles. So they were able to take out aircraft um, and Russian aircraft. And as soon as you start taking out any kind of top cover for any military force that could use it for reconnaissance, for uh, pinpointing key locations of enemy positions uh, that sort of thing then you are blinding them and you're taking the the fight down to the enemy's level now the one thing the mujahideen and good friends of mine who are both in the royal marines um, you know we we would have the royal marines in the parachute regiment uh, the parachute regiment were great for the fighting on the flat and the royal marines were great for the warfare in the in, in the mountains and the same, obviously, with your guys, with the with the Navy SEALs and the Airborne Rangers. You know, you take the fight into the hills. But the fight in the mountains, the Mujahideen, they know that back to front. They have the cave systems. Uh, they know their vantage points. I mean, even when there was the extractions coming out of Kabul quite recently, um, there was sniper fire, because in Kabul you do have it surrounded by a mountain range. And there was sniper fire shooting at Italian planes and a Brit planes you know, when they were taking off. Um, So, you know, I think one can't compare it other than it was a failure. And the problem with the way that Biden's done this is it's a failure. And it will, it looks as a failure because nothing that we put in place is going to be sustained.
0: One of the, I guess, talking points or the justification for the spending for the lives lost and for the past 20 years is that if it is an unstable region, it'll be a breeding ground for terrorism, it'll run free, it'll be supported, and that is seems like a, a really valid justification, especially the emotions and, and what we saw with 9-11. Like, I was a, a kid, and I still remember that day of my parents telling me about it and what that meant to me at age of six or five years old, all the way up to 26 today. So is that justification did that fade away? Or in 2021, is it just as real that now that things have withdrawn beyond the, the tragic images of the people that helped, the tragic stories of women's rights, is now a large-scale terrorist attack back on the table as, as a, a real possibility that there is a breeding ground now that there isn't uh, an army on the ground?
1: Yeah, there is. Uh, plain and wow. simple. There is, and it's probably a worse threat than it was back in 2001. Um, The fundamental problem is that we now have a Taliban that will have international support, potentially from China, from Russia, from Iran. Um, Taliban and al-Qaeda were very aligned. Uh, ISIS-K are enemies of Taliban. Uh, Many of the Taliban members defected to ISIS-K. ISIS-K is a franchise of Islamic State in the, the Iraq and the Levant, uh, in Syria and Iraq. Uh, they went over there as a delegation in, I think 2004, uh, and said, look, we're gonna set up this ISIS branch here. Um, and some of the Taliban, the Afghanistan Taliban and Pakistan Taliban went to join them. Now they have a far more extreme, I mean, as if you could get more extreme than the Taliban interpretation of Sharia law. Um, but they've been hugely successful. You might not see anything in the news, but they've killed hundreds, uh, if not thousands of civilians in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. Wow. Uh, they are carrying out all the same savagery and brutality. Now, they are going to be well-equipped, and I think there's every good possibility. I mean, I speculated, and I think I put it on Twitter or I said it in an interview, where I thought there could be a join-up. Thinking about it more now, I don't think there will be, but I think there will be a coexistence. I think ISIS-K will be left to do their own thing. Talib- Al-Qaeda will do their own thing with support from Taliban. As long as ISIS-K don't kick off with fights with Al-Qaeda or the Taliban, they'll probably be left to their own devices. But that's a fundamental problem that we've got down there. You've now got a nation which, as before, with just Al-Qaeda, has a safe haven for terrorist training camps, uh, for the development of tactics um, and tradecraft, Uh, One of the biggest successes that we've had over the last two decades is cutting off and preventing the access by foreign fighters from the United States, from Canada, from the UK, from Europe, uh, getting down to terrorist training camps. The problem we have now is a a country which will welcome you and you can access. And if you're going down to pledge your allegiance to one of these groups, um, you potentially can get into the country without too much restriction. Without any kind of intelligence assets down there, it creates a blind spot possibly for us to understand what capabilities are being developed and built down there, which will then be brought back to our own home countries and implemented. So I think we're in a worse place, Takis, than we were before.
0: It is super disheartening to hear that one of the primary motivations two decades ago for going is actually amplified as there's an exit with the spending, the loss of life, and and all the tragedy that has happened. So that is a, a really sad thought. But I want to wrap up with two options. Your best case, Will, at his most optimistic for what can happen, what can change, what we can see if you were in charge today. And I also do want to get a realistic worst case for if nothing changes, and if negative momentum occurs, as we wrap up this slightly somber episode.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, buddy, I, you know me, I'm not great for the the happy stories. Um, Well, your first question, in terms of the reality of what's going to happen down there, um, I think the Taliban will keep their agenda under cover for a while, they'll, they'll play the good guys, they'll talk about democracy, they'll, They'll maybe even open up universities for women to go to temporarily. But as soon as they've got what they want, their true colours will emerge. And we'll be back to the implementation of Sharia Law, where loud music can't be played in public, uh, men can't shave their beards, women can't leave the house unless they're fully covered and also will not be able to be educated um, and won't be able to leave without a male chaperone. Child brides will be sold off um, to Taliban fighters. Uh, It's horrific. Um, As to the future, I can't, to your second question, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm not sure I can remember what it was, but I I can't see a great deal of hope of what we can do. Uh, The US have withdrawn. We as the Brits and you as the Canadians can't go in without sadly, the might of the United States behind us. Uh, We have to go together. Um, We can't go on our own. And if we do go down there, that would be a declaration of war and we would be back to square one again. So I only hope that the US are going to continue to run CIA assets, um, keep intelligence coming back from the region and uh, where they can get away with it, the odd sneaky drone strike. Good result in my book.